Welcome to the podcast series from the Decision-Making Voices from the Field Leadership Seminars at Harvard School of Public Health. You may also watch a video of this event at www.hsph.harvard.edu backslash translation. Ladies and gentlemen, my name is Zachary Nider, and I'm a master's student in the Health Policy and Management Department and a co-chair of the Student Leadership Circle, a committee instrumental in supporting and marketing the Voices events. <coughs> it is my distinct honor to introduce today's Voices speaker, President Felipe Calderon, former President of Mexico. During his time in office, President Calderon's policies had pronounced success within the business, environmental, and educational sectors, yet some of his administration's greatest achievements were accomplished within the health sector. From as early as his inauguration day address, President Calderon made it clear that broad access to health services would be a high priority. His government continued the successful and widely celebrated comprehensive insurance program known as Seguro Popular, as well as working to expand infrastructure to ensure high quality care and services. With the global financial crisis leading to difficult choices within governments across the world, President Calderon ensured that the health agenda received the necessary funding to guarantee the sustainability of Mexico's push towards universal health insurance coverage. In August 2012, it was announced that Mexico had successfully realized this monumental achievement, enrolling over 50 million people in health insurance in less than a decade and attaining universal coverage. President Calderon's focus on population health also included the establishment of the Mexican Genome Project, which was created in response to risks posed by potential global pandemics. The project has also helped assist in the targeting of diseases through the identification of specific genetic markers. President Calderon has received numerous awards and recognition, including the World Economic Forum Global Leadership Statesmanship Award in 2012. Since completing his term late last year, President Calderon is now the first Angelopoulos Global Public Leaders Fellow at the Kennedy School. Before I turn the session over to Dr. Barry Bloom, who will be moderating today, please join me in welcoming President Calderon to the Harvard School of Public Health and to the decision-making Voices from the Field Leadership Series. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, thank you so much, Zachary. Uh, good afternoon and uh, welcome to this decision-making voices from the field leadership webcast conversation. We're enormously pleased to have uh, former President Felipe Calderon of Mexico as our guest speaker uh, today. The leadership series focuses on leaders around the world who've made major contributions in the world of public service, of business and health, and who have had to make difficult decisions during the course of their career, and we ask that they share those experiences with us. Um, we have uh, uh, today a webcast that will go worldwide in probably reach over 190 countries, and uh, we hope that you will enjoy the session as much as the audience here uh, expects to do so. We have an audience in the studio comprised of uh, faculty and students from the Harvard School of Public Health, and we look forward to hearing lots of questions from them, and I would ask them to begin to think about uh, the kinds of questions they would like to ask. But I'd like to begin the discussion um, on the issue of public service, which is so important in the area of public health, and ask President Calderon what his reflections are of a major term in public service in Mexico. 
Well, thank you, Barbara. Well, thanks. thanks for your words and thanks for these invitations. Um, what I can say about public service is that uh, first, public service is about principles and beliefs. If you are not able to believe that you can change the reality of thousands or probably millions of people, you are not going to make it. Public service, if it is honestly carry on, implies a lot of sacrifice. So you need to be strong. And the only way to do that is being a man or woman with principles, ideals, and values. Second, public service is about priorities and decisions. It is impossible to afford all the human needs. It is impossible to fix all the problems. It is impossible to address all the necessities of the people. So the resources are scarce, or, or you have not enough money to do everything, so you need to decide and to establish some priorities. And doing so, uh, we follow a very uh, wise expression of the among the Mexican people and probably among other people, which is health becomes first. Health is first. In any family, if some member of the family, a kid or the mother or whatever, has some problems, some disease, some accidents, all the family will to pay and sacrifice anything in order to afford the hospitals or the doctor's expenses. So health is first. So if that is the popular wisdom for the government was the wisdom as, as well. So we decided to put health first. Um, or the point is, uh, there is an expression which, which says that love which is not expressed or reflected in the budget it is not true love. <laughs> so, so we decided to, to apply or to express our priorities in the budget. I, I remember that uh, when I was uh, designing with my team during the transition term as president-elect, uh, the budget for the first year of my tenure, I asked the, the, the head of my staff at that time, well, what do we need in order to reach universal health coverage in Mexico during these six years? So, Mr. President, that's impossible. But why? It's, it implies a lot of money. It's, it's, we cannot afford. So tell me a number. Mr. President, we need to multiply by five or by six the budget for, instance, Seguro Popular, which was put in place by Julio Frank, the, the dean of the school. So, but, well, Please, uh, forming the budget, multiply, starting with two by two, the budget for that. Well, where we can get the money? Well, so you need to sacrifice all the programs. And we reduce the budget for a lot of programs in agricultural sector, for instance, which is a sector which has a lot of deviations because the rich people for instance in rural areas are getting most of the subsidies there. So we reduce and we increase the budget for Seguro Popular. And at the end of my tenure, we multiply by five the budget. And we reach universal health coverage. So we pass from almost, at the beginning of my government, probably less than 60 million people out of 112 million Mexicans uh, had some kind of health coverage from 
uh, public insurance. And at the end of my tenure, we reached 106 million people covered with some kind of insurance, uh, either Social Security or Social Security for public workers or Seguro Popular. So, and that implied to multiply the budget for Seguro Popular and multiply the budget for infrastructure in health system. So at the end, we built like 1,200 new hospitals or clinics, and we rebuilt 2,500 more in addition to that. So we rebuilt the whole infrastructure system in Mexico. And the last one could be you need to take decisions. So the most difficult aspect of public service is taking decisions. And sometimes once you can believe that you can take decisions between the good and the bad. You know. But the problem is that being public servants, you need to take decisions most of the time between the less of two evils. So always there is some cost, some sacrifice. Any decision, any serious decisions implies sacrificing something, sacrificing money, sacrificing uh, or taking more taxes or sacrificing popularity or public support or whatever or paying a very high cost in terms of either political or economic costs. So that's, that could be my initial reflections, uh, Barry. So as you know, uh, thank you very much for that, which really sets the stage for a really interesting discussion. Um, as you are acutely aware, new strains of influenza when they arise and infect people who've not previously seen them have the potential to cause global pandemics. During your presidency, a new strain, H1N1, that had the same name, in essence, as the 1918 influenza that killed 50 million people, arose in Mexico and was declared by the World Health Organization to be a global pandemic. Can you share with us some of the tough decisions you had to make when dealing with that pandemic and how you balanced the protection of the people's health with the potential harm to the economy caused by this pandemic that arose in Mexico? Well, that's exactly one of the cases in which you need to decide, regardless you have not enough information, what exactly we had at that time. First, like one month before I realized, even reading the daily report I received as president, that in some hospitals, we started to see some people dying in a very weird situation. Uh, we were talking about very young people in 20s or 30, healthy people uh, dying by uh, typical pneumonias. So I asked the Secretary of Health that uh, what is happening, Secretary, uh, the Dr. Cordoba, he told me, well, we do believe that it could be like any flu, uh, probably delayed because we were in April at that time. But let me check. So he took some samples from all the people and sent those samples to a very special lab in Chicago. I don't know, I don't remember the name even. And I'm sorry for that, but the American lab took a lot of time to do that and never responded. <laughs> so we sent another set of samples to the Canadian lab in Toronto because the Canadian yeah. developed after SARS, a quite interesting system. And finally, one afternoon, it was like a 
Thursday, I remember, and Secretary of Health called me by phone and said, Mr. President, it's urgent, I need to see you immediately. I received the outcome of the samples and uh, it's something serious. I received him in my office 20 minutes later. And he told me, well, the outcome is like this. This is an unknown virus, it's a new one. Of course, it's lethal, we know that. Um, meanwhile, we don't know exactly how to cure that, and we, do, we have no idea about the rate of lethality. And we started to observe even more people arriving to the hospitals. So we took some projections that uh, quite important uh, public servants did in the past. For instance, in one scenario, we were expecting that if, if uh, uh, um, some rate of uh, lethality of the virus and some rate of propagation of the virus or contagious of the virus, of the virus, uh, after three weeks could cause like more than 50,000 casualties. Um, probably more than uh, a quarter of a million uh, people getting sick uh, or looking for attention in the hospitals. Actually, at that moment, we started to see that we are not able to afford the people looking the support, for instance, to, uh, of one respirators in the hospital. So uh, we, we saw clearly a health crisis at that moment. And the, the biggest problem is the lack of information because, yes, we can assume that it could be like any normal flu virus. Or we have no idea, it could be a, a very lethal virus, could be the, the uh, virus like in, in the second decade of the last century, or could be even the avian flu or something like that. Uh, you know, the avian flu has a rate of lethality of 60%. Um, so we have no idea, the, uh, and we decided to protect the people and prevent the worst case scenario. One additional problem, the outbreak of the flu was exactly in Mexico City uh, with a population of 23 million people. So we decided to make something like shoot down the city that weekend in order to delay the propagation of the virus. So the ministry went to the TV uh, under my order, uh, ordered to close the elementary schools and secondary schools at the time, asking for universities to do the same. Friday, we, we had a holiday the following Sunday, so um, Monday, so it was very useful for us. And we asked for the private sector to, to close the business Friday and Friday and, and Monday. So finally, Mexico City was paralyzed. At the same time, we started to, to express a policy of full disclosure because the secretary told me, we have not information yet about this virus. So you need to go to the public. You need to be completely honest about what is happening. And if you have information that 10 people die today, or two, or 10, or 100, you will say exactly that. Today, 10 people died in that hospital, or in that or those hospitals, and we are receiving this amount of people every day in the hospitals. And you can see clearly, we started to, to depict it 
in uh, a wall, the, uh, the rate of uh, or the number of people going to the hospitals at that time. And you can see dramatically how the number of people started to grow, reaching several peaks. And actually, several hospitals were unable to attend more people. So the situation was really serious. But after that, finally, we discovered, like three, two or three days later, with information of the labs, that the virus could be addressed with Tamiflu and other ordinary uh, medication. So we started to provide the people with that. Uh, we get a lot of Tamiflu doses, and I protected them even with the army and distributed uh, across the country because the panic of the people was it could be a serious issue. Fortunately, the people, Mexican people, were incredibly serious and respectful, and everyone followed the instructions of the government. So at the very end, there were several upsides uh, of this. For instance, as long we recommended to wash the hands and uh, avoid kissing, for instance, we Mexican people love to kiss <laughs> all the time, no? Men to women, so. Uh, we needed to avoid that at that time. Uh, but it, uh, the people started to follow that instructions, and we got some kind of improvement in our health system. For instance, the average, the, 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 the average of days in the hospitals uh, of the people who was sick for anything, uh, respiratory disease, like the average in the hospital could be like nine or 10 days. After all these measures, the average of days of that people went down to four days only because they got to the, they got to the hospital earlier uh, in the very early symptoms of the disease, any respiratory disease, they got the, the right diagnosis, they got the right medicine, so they cure faster. We reduce the number of diseases of, for instance, gastrointestinal diseases because people start to wash frequently hands and so on. So it was a very tough experience. And at the same time, this scandal around the world because, yes, the H1N1 reached the highest level according to the, the World Health Organizations, is number six level or something like that. But nevertheless, we decided to be absolutely transparent on that. Full disclosure was the name of the game for us. And it's a question of uh, this, this taking decisions in a very hard scenario with lack of information. Assume that you are, uh, the pilot, you are the pilot of one plane and you are seeing nothing. You are absolutely blind. In that moment, you need to figure out what is the size of the mountain. Yes, the mountain could be like a very small hill but the mountain could be either could be the Everest or whatever. So you need to decide thinking in the worst case scenario. Because if you take the ground decisions and maybe you fly too high and the day after it was a teeny hill, maybe you say, well, you overreacted. And always there is, what is the expression in the United States? The, the Monday night quarterback, no? So you have, <laughs> you have the reason after the game, yes. But what about the other way around, no? If you decide that you can afford, no, with the same uh, altitude, and suddenly you face the mountain, you have no time to react. So we decided under those bases, so that was the story. I think you did very well, and the world did very well because of the 
responses initiated in Mexico. Let me now throw it open to um, the students and faculty here in the studio and ask uh, if we could have some questions. Please, first row. Hi. Um, my name is Leo. I'm from Argentina. Um, I'm an MPH student here in the healthcare policy and management concentration with a policy track, and I'm also a uh, member of the student leadership circle. And um, so when, when you got um, into the office, there were 50 million Mexicans that were uninsured. And yourself, um, with Julio, developed um, this whole idea of Seguro Popular, which was fantastic. And you were mentioning that taking decisions is vital for a policy um, creator, policymaker. Um, and so my question is, what were the main challenges that you faced when you were trying to establish Segura Popular in Mexico and trying to achieve universal healthcare coverage besides the money? Could I just ask you to amplify on that wonderful question to explain what Seguro Popular is for the audience who will be watching in the yeah, webcast? I think it's, well, l let me start with this and thank you for your question. One is, we in Mexico before, we had like uh, two public systems of uh, health insurances. One was the traditional social security, which is carried on by the entrepreneurs and the workers itself. They paid like a quota, uh, they made a, a fee of payment in order to pay the social security insurance. And we have another system, we have another system which is the same, but not for private workers, but for public servants, the ISTE. But, but beyond that, we have a lot of people, 50 million people, almost half of the population, without any kind of health insurance coverage. So Julio designed uh, the Seguro Popular, which is a new insurance in which the government uh, pay the cost of the insurance to the provider of the health services. In this case, uh, the provider of health services are the local public systems in the states. Uh, and probably that is, so, so we put the money we pay to, a, to each local health system a per capita amount for each people under insurance. And with that money, the health systems could provide salaries for doctors, nurses, and even that money assumes that that money is going to, to help to build new facilities and infrastructure. Beyond that, we pay for the infrastructure in those states. So uh, it was a massive effort in order to, to build the infrastructure required for that. I cannot remember exactly the figures, but for instance, during my tenure, we hired like probably like 30,000 new medical doctors to the system and almost 60,000 new nurses for the system. So that was possible to afford through Seguro Popular and all those thousands of new or rebuilt hospitals and clinics. It could be small clinics <coughs> with, with uh, four or five beds, or it could be some hospital with 200 beds, for instance. 
what could be the most challenging issue? Probably the lack of responsibility of some local systems. So because we paid, uh, in some cases, billion of pesos <coughs> to one government in one state, my own state, Michoacán, for instance. In Michoacán, I remember it was my own state, and uh, we put special attention. I <laughs> say that all the states are the same, are equal, but there are some more equal than others. You know? <laughs> uh, so we have a lot of hospitals and clinics everywhere, and put a lot of money with Seguro Popular. Federal servants went town, town by town getting the insurance to the people. The people were registering, uh, bring the kids to the hospital and so, and so on. And the money we gave to the government, most of them never went to the hospitals. So there was a disaster in the treasury in the state. And that was the most challenging issue, the lack of responsibility. It, it's very easy when the political system has not enough accountability measures or mechanism. A lot of people just got the money and never responds to the to the people. So probably we need to fix that. Uh, um, probably it's a chronical issue in the Mexican system. We have a federal system, but we have not the right incentives to well performing of the system. So the states has the state have a lot of uh, rights, if I can say that. The federal government has a lot of liabilities with them. But you cannot, or you have not enough mechanism to get uh, some kind of accountability from them. That could be maybe the, the most challenging issue even today. Because the insurance is there, the money is there, the infrastructure is there. But all you need is that the provider or the people who are on charge to provide the final health service to the people do their work. As you know, uh, President Calderon, uh, we in this country have passed the Affordable Care Act, which will go into force in about two weeks. And there is great controversy in this country. Um, lots of people uh, feel it will be um, a wonderful thing and reach vast numbers of people who are not insured. And others feel that we can't afford it or it will cause many problems. Um, Two questions related. First, is the Seguro Popular appreciated by the public in Mexico now that it has been instituted? And do you have any advice for us in this country? Well, the second, the answer to the second question is no. <laughs> <laughs> A true politician. Uh, but but uh, uh, for the first, yes, absolutely appreciated. So the levels of support of Seguro Popular are amazing. I don't know probably is the most appreciated uh, public program by the people. But let me tell you, uh, I think it's a question of principles. So again, health is the first. Health becomes first. If you want to provide a human society with the basic conditions for to live, so the first one is to be able to get medical services regardless your economic condition. That's the issue. Because uh, it doesn't depend on the people, your health system. I mean, the first rule to break the justice in the society is that some people have full opportunities for anything, for, to study, to have self-service or whatever. And a lot of people have not opportunities. 
So you, we are exacerbating the different social differences, and we ex are exacerbating misery because the lack, for instance, the lack of public or, or some kind of insurance for the poorest people in terms of health system is uh, it causes not only damage to their health but also to their economy. Again, because when one member of the family has a problem, an accident or whatever, the family needs to expend everything on that member. So the family, if the family is poor, the family will be even more poor. Why? Because they need to borrow money from some abu abusive men in the neighborhood. So they need to, to sell their, their homes or whatever in order to cure that people. So it's, this is catastrophic expenditure, which is exacerbating poverty. So you need to avoid that. And it's good in social and economic terms. Second, so you have money as government. You need to establish priorities. Maybe the government, in, in several countries, in the case of Mexico, for instance, we make, we make several mistakes. For instance, subsidizing fossil fuels still. Actually, I started a program in order to reduce and even eliminate fossil fuels gradually. But the point is we are spending a lot of money in several things that they are not exactly priorities. Um, finally, you can see the outcome of your effort in an incredible way. Let me tell you one story, for instance. In 2009, one of the systems of Seguro Popular, is, it, has, it has a basic list of uh, diseases and services, which is the basic, basic frame of that. In 2008, we decided to incorporate the cancer treatment for children uh, under 18. The program was all the cancer for all the children. So before that measure, for instance, in the case of leukemia, seven out of 10 kids with leukemia died. And today, seven out of 10 kids with leukemia survive. So you can see the, 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 the change in those families and the reality of those kids. It's, it's very emotional for me and, and a lot of examples of that. You cannot pay that with anything. Wonderful. Other questions from the floor? Please. Wait for the mic. Hi, my name is Nicole. I'm um, a PhD student in biological sciences of public health. Um, I had a question about um, sort of the scientific infrastructure and um, science diplomacy. So you had um, the experience of contacting Toronto for their previous um, experience with SARS and with your own experience with H1N1. How did that help develop your um, disease surveillance program? And then also, how did this uh, epidemic affect your relationship with other countries? Good question. <laughs> well, one is, well, well First, the situation is we had not at that time in Mexico the lab capacity to detect the virus. Two weeks later, we have the same kind of labs or equipment in every single capital of the states in Mexico. So today, we are able to detect and analyze the virus in 32 cities in the country. So in order to do that, I sent, for instance, I put all the resources of the government with that priority. For instance, uh, there was a lack of capacity in the Secretary of Health. No? 
and the people in the institute with the lab was, of course, overwhelmed with the problem, um, blind of, of the work. No, it was impossible to. Uh, of course, we asked her, the director, please get the instruments you need, and she was like a working around the clock. So I asked, you know, to the social development secretary in Mexico. I took him away from his daily work. I say, you need to go to the state of the state of the art technology. To, you need to take that and take the money you need. And I published a special decree that the extraordinary conditions. So he went with his team to get the equipment, the instruments, the capability, and organized like a task force in order to build the labs immediately, like an emergency situation. So we built the lab like in 15 days. This was an incredible. When I saw the machines, by the way, I was imagining like a, no, well, like a, the TV shows when, my, when I was a child, no? a lot of lamps and bulbs and so no, it's like a, like a printer or something like that. No? It's, like, it's a little bit disappointing for me, but very expensive to be a printer anyway. Uh, but we, 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 we did so. And the other, yeah, there was a, some bad feelings. For instance, a group of Mexican tourists went to China. And the Chinese government didn't allow them to get out of the plane. And after two days, they allowed to just to be in a, in a hotel, absolutely isolated in a, in a very some moments was very humiliating for them and their families. So I sent a plane to get them, and they came back, and uh, it was a difficult moment. I had a, a plan to have a state visit to Cuba, for instance, those days, so one month later, something like that. So the Cuban government decided to cancel all the planes coming from Mexico. And a lot of countries, France, Sarkozy made the same. I think it's a lack of information or uh, I don't want to say other word. But, <laughs> but the point is, it was absurd because in this case, that kind of disease, you cannot stop them in that way. So you need to take the measures and it's impossible to, to stop the flow of uh, the virus in that way. But anyway, finally, we fixed the situation and we were preparing my trip state visit to Cuba, I said, wait, I cannot go to Cuba because the government forbidden flies coming from Mexico to Cuba. <laughs> so it was a <laughs> difficult situation, no. But it was a very difficult moment indeed. No. I do prefer, I did prefer at that time to be absolutely transparent instead, instead to hide the, the data of the problem. In some governments, for instance, uh, in the case of SARS, or in the case of even the avian flu, we as human community, we, we have lack of information, which is really dangerous. We have no idea, for instance, what is happening right now. You know, two months ago, one month ago, there was one single, one case of uh, human transmission of avian flu. Uh, finally, we got information about that, but before that, we didn't know what exactly is happening with that. Information is key. Who's uh, next for a question? Yes, young lady here. 
Hi, Suzanne Brendage. I'm a master's student in the Health Policy and Management Program. Many of us in the United States have looked with great sympathy uh, to the drug violence taking place along our border. And one way to look at that problem is through a traditional law enforcement security lens. But it's also a public health problem. And I wonder to what extent have you examined that issue as a public health challenge and what different solutions might come from looking at it as such a challenge and whether there are any international diplomacy um, solutions as well that you would hope to see between our two countries? Well, good question. Do you have time? Because <laughs> <laughs> we have a few minutes. Oh, I need some hours to, to talk about it. Yes, uh, we, of course, we saw in the same way. It's a, it's, a, it's a health problem, addiction mainly. Actually, one of the actions we took, um, it's a very complex problem. I don't know where to start, but let me try to figure out if I can do that through your question. It's health problem, and we work a lot preventing addiction and treating addiction among teenagers and um, young people. Actually, we built almost 400 centers of prevention and treatment of addictions in the country. By far, is the largest program of prevention ever. And Margarita, my wife, started a program called Nueva Vida, New Life, in which we teach, or she and her team, started to teach professors, parents, volunteers, Red Cross, uh, parish, uh, churches. And the idea is to establish like a flow and to teach to the parents to talk with the child, you know, and to teach to the parents to realize if your son or daughter is getting troubled with drugs and to pay attention about the kind of friends and to how to establish a link and connections and how to treat that, how to address the issue. And actually, probably through that program passed like uh, almost one and a million people in four years. It was very, very impressive. We work a lot, for instance, in the some of the psychiatry institutions. We are pushing a lot research and uh, programs. Actually, Mexican doctors are almost reaching like a, a vaccine against the additions to cocaine. And so we work on several fronts. Second, for me, the issue is not about drugs. It's not about war on drugs. The issue for me in terms of uh, security was exactly that, how to protect the Mexican families who are threatened by organized crime, which is a very different phenomenon that only drugs itself. Actually, one of my most important problems I have is the communicational problem, because here in the States, the only interpretation of the problem is war on drugs. And th this situation is because in the 70s, President Nixon coined the expression war on drugs. He declared the drugs the number one enemy of the United States, and everything related with Mexico and violence is, in this frame, related to war on drugs. Yes, it's linked with drugs, but it's not war on drugs. For me, the key issue is to establish the rule of law in Mexico, to protect the security of Mexican families, and to make Mexico a different country in terms of security levels. 
Now, what is the problem in the country? Uh, the problem started, uh, actually, for instance, during my government, we decriminalized the personal consumption of drugs. So the personal doses of marijuana or cocaine or even heroin or the law established some levels consider personal doses and is decriminalized, it's not a felony. Um, now, what is the problem in Mexico? Mexico started to be a very powerful economy since 90s, probably after NAFTA. The income per capita, for instance, under PPP, uh, passed from $2,000 to $15,000. Actually, Goldman Sachs uh, uh, considers that Mexican economy could be the fifth or the sixth largest economy in the world by the year 50. In that sense, Mexico became a very important market for consumption of any goods or services. Very important market for uh, housing, vehicles, iPhones, whatever. And very important market for drugs as well. And that is important because the traditional business of the of the of the criminals who are exactly narco-traffic, literally trafficking narcotics to U.S. But when Mexico started to be a very important market, they started new, besides that, they started a new business, which is retailing drugs. So we say the problem is passing from narco-trafico to narco-menudeo, we say. So retailing drugs is absolutely different from exporting drugs. No? Exporting drugs to U.S. is like a logistical and transport issue. Retailing is an issue related with controlling multiple point of sales, which implies a quite important difference, which is the control of the territory. You want to export one ton of drugs from Mazatlan to Tucson, you need to control the authority in the line towards the U.S. The highway, you need to control one point of the border. You, going to, you need to bribe American authorities in the border, custom, uh, migration, and several of them. Of course, they are under briefs. But that is the issue, exporting. But now, what happens if you want to sell that ton of drug in one city, Ciudad Juarez, for instance, or Nogales? You need to control probably 600 point of sales of the drug in the city. In order to do that, you need a net over that. Other question, how many people do you need to cross one tons of cocaine from Mexico to U.S.? Probably the driver, 10 people helping them, other 10 protecting them, other 10 bribing the authorities. I don't know, 20, 50, 100 you want? Now, the same question is, how many people do you need in order to sell uh, one gram uh, samples of cocaine or one gram bags? By the way, how many bags are <laughs> of one gram are coming from one ton of cocaine? Hmm? Question for everyone. <laughs> one million. You need to sell one million bags. How many people do you need in order to sell one million bags in one week? You need thousands of people. So they started to create a powerful nets among young people. There are very important Harvard professor in the 70s who studied the organized crime here in Boston, Professor Schelling. Unfortunately, he passed away. 
but he, he said was a very important thing. At the very end, the business of organized crime is extortion. It's extortioning. Yes, they start to be organized crime because he started providing a very important service or good to the society, which is against the law. And that could be illicit games, or that could be alcohol, or drugs, or prostitution, or whatever. But there is one point in which organized crime is so sophisticated that they like uh, upgrade their activities. And now, the most important business is not the original business. The important business is to have the control of that street, of that neighborhood, of that city, and start to bribe people against the law. And then they start to collect money, for instance, from the prostitutes, or for the guy who has uh, a forbidden game house or any illegal activities. And the question of sharing is, why are they extortioning people under illegal activities? And the answer is, because they have not any legal instrument to defend themselves. So they have no option but pay the extortion. So the new business is extortioning. And my definition of organized crime is organized crime is that kind of uh, crime which through the violence or threatening try to collect the rents, licit or illicit rents in one society. So we arrived to the problem in Mexico. We started to see people who, who is kidnapped or extorted or people who, needs, who need to pay some kind of fee to the criminals. And what is the difference? That uh, the organized crime was not able to, to took over the Boston police in the 60s. But organized crime in Mexico has been able to took over the police corps in several cities and states in Mexico. And what I found is they were in control of the city and they were extorting and kidnapping the people. So coming back to my initial point, my problem was not war on drugs. My problem was security of the families and protecting the families. So I started this strategy. It was a comprehensive strategy with three points. Facing the criminals, because in the traditional business of exporting to US, it was very easy to say, I don't care about the criminals. Let them. It's a gringo problem, and so on. And they, the, the learning, the common learning was, don't face the criminals. So I need to start to face the criminals. Because they appeared in 20 vans in the streets full of weapons. And they start to face the criminals with full force of the state, including, yes, the army. Because there is not other capacity to, to defeat them. You can imagine 10 cops with 38 guns, you know, facing guys with uh, with uh, uh, matching guns uh, caliber 50, so it's impossible. Second, and more important, rebuild law enforcement agencies and institutions. And I established and passed in the Congress a law in which any single top officer in police corps needs to be vetted. So we started to, to introduce exams, uh, psychological, toxicological, polygraph exams to top police officers, and even all the members of police corps at federal level. And we push a lot to do the same at the state level, and several 
governments rejected that. They did prefer to stay like, like that. And third, and even more important, to rebuild the social fabric. And that was another reason why we not only provide a universal health care, but also we built like 140 new universities and 1,100 new high schools, all of them public and tuition-free universities and high schools. And with that, we made a, a very important effort to rescue that. So that's more or less my answer. There are, could be options, yes. Actually, I propose with the President of Colombia and the President of Guatemala and United Nations, I propose and demand, demanded uh, new discussions about universal policy about drugs. Because we estimated that, uh, to be honest, the American society don't care about the problems. Look this point related with the weapons. During my tenure, we seized 160,000 weapons. Almost 90% of them were sold legally here in the States. There are eight gun shops in the border with Mexico per each Walmart in the United States. And all those weapons are killing Mexican people. And you can see clearly um, a clear correlation between the moment in which one society has a tremendous availability of weapons and the rate of homicides in those societies. You can see that, for instance, in Africa after a civil war. You can see that in El Salvador after the guerrillas and so on. And what, at, at that time, in those countries, it's because the civil war or the guerrilla. In Mexico, it's because in 2004, the Congress and the American government, they rejected to, to well, they, they allowed to expire the assault weapons ban. And since then, you can see a clear correlation between the rate of homicides in Mexico and the, this new situation. And the people don't care about this regulation. The government failed, the Democrats failed, the Republicans failed about that. And we are paying a very high cost for that. That's an example of a set of very, very tough decisions. Um, let me conclude this discussion, if I may, with a couple questions that I think are shared by every leader, even former deans, um, which is ask your reflections on two questions. One is how you would like to see your legacy remembered by uh, the people of Mexico and the outside world. And the second question is, um, if you were looking at your tenure as president 25 years from now, looking back, what would you have liked to have done that you were not able to or not done that you chose to do? Well, talking about legacy is difficult. Of course, I think a good legacy, it is the universal health coverage by any means. Probably for Mexican people, they don't realize the size of the effort because they have already, you know. I remember the opinion polls at the beginning, uh, health, lack of health services was on the top five problems of the people in opinion polls, but even in some cases on the top three problems of the people. Today, 
lack of health services doesn't appear in opinion polls. So for the people this like that is they, they they take it for granted if I can say that that that's good, but uh, that's one important point, legacy. We made a lot in terms of infrastructure. Uh, we created even in the middle of the crisis, we acted in a very aggressive manner in order to rebound the economy, to put in place counter-cyclical measures. And actually, the Mexican economy went very well after that. It was almost four years growing at a rate of 4.3% on average from 2009 in the middle to 2012, mm -hmm. creating almost two and a half million formal jobs. But the people will remember that age, not by the recovery of the Mexican economy, but the economic crisis itself. So I'm talking about the second 25 years. Well, one is I would like to make the reforms that Mexico needs, which is it's possible that Mexico will do that right now, education and energy, because the new administration, the new president has one thing that I didn't have, which is the support of political parties in the opposition. Of course, uh, any government change related to the other, but what, what is changing in Mexico exactly right now, more than the government, what is changing is the opposition. You know? And the opposition is very responsible today, and I would like to have that in order to, to make the energy reform. I proposed one to the Congress, it was rejected, most of, the, most of them. Uh, other thing is uh, I would like to have to finish this rebuild process in, in uh, enforcement agencies in Mexico. It's crucial, it's crucial. Um, and maybe I could have analyzing, I will do, I would say that I would prefer to have a better relationship with the Congress. I did so at the beginning and then uh, my right hand died in an airplane crash. She was Secretary of Interior. And one, for one or another reason, I leave the relations with the Congress. Uh, we, we were very close, we had a very close relationship with them. We had breakfast every Friday with congressmen and talk with them. And suddenly I say, well, uh, I forgot that or I leave that. I didn't want to do the same. And it was probably a failure or not failure, but maybe the relationship could be very helpful for the government. Last word is your advice in a democratic society with wide differences in views on every issue. How do you bring people together? Clearly you've indicated in the case of influenza, information and transparency. How do you see the role of leadership in bringing disparate views to compromise together? But it's difficult. Uh, as you know, I won by half percent of the votes in a very tight election. Uh, but all the time I try to be a president performing with honesty in office. I mean, uh, I try to be honest with the people I talk always with my beliefs and principles, and I try to listen to the people. That is very important. 
one of the big mistakes of any leader is, especially in very technical areas like yours, we try to believe, to believe that the technical answers are the right answers. But being in government is not about or is not only about technical responses. It's about human responses. Uh, I was telling one, some friends in one dinner that Julio invited me some months ago that I know you, a lot of you are med probably medical doctors in health ministries, but you will learn that your headache could not be cured with an aspirin. <laughs> no? Or you can see that your ministry will be paralyzed and your diagnosis as a doctor will be absolutely wrong. No? It's paralyzed, but uh, you have not any drug that could fix that. So you need to address that in a different way. So you need the technical responses, yes, but you need the adaptive responses. So you need to be able to, to make the people address the problem and the values of the community. And in order to do that, you need to open your ears. Listen, one of the problems we had is the violence was, the crime was so violent. And it started to leave a lot of victims around. And there was a quite important movements of victims in Mexico, blaming everyone, especially the government and so on. I was trying to explain, it's not my action, it's the action of the criminals. And what I, because one of the problems, the criminals started to expand each other and trying to control the same territory, they clash each other, and that started this terrible violence. And in the middle of that, a lot of people pay in the sense that the criminals were absolutely cruel with the people. However, the movement grew, and I decided to talk with them. And I said, I want to talk with the leaders of the victims. And they established a set of conditions. It must be a public, it must be an equal table, and it must be absolutely free, and the conditions. They decided even which kind of cameras and which company was going to, uh, to video record the, okay? I agree with that. And we had a direct conversation. I can hear them, and they could, they could hear me. And it was a vital moment of my presidency. So you need to hear the people. You need to hear the, your workers. You need to hear your patients. You need to hear what exactly is happening then. And try to understand that any society or any group or any family or any couple have or has some kind of hidden issues. It's an expression of uh, one of the professors of the Kennedy School, Heifetz. There are a lot of hidden issues in our societies. And you need to be able to hear all those hidden issues. And if you want to be a leader, you need to be able to address those hidden issues directly. And you need to be able to get the people participating and addressing those issues. It's President too complex. Calderon, hmm? our time is up. I know. Um, <laughs> I want to I like uh, thank you enormously for allowing us the privilege of hearing you and sharing your experience. And thank you so much for coming to the Harvard School of Public Health. Thank you. Terrific job. This has been a production of Decision Making Voices from the Field at Harvard School of Public Health. You can find the complete video of the event 
at www.hsph.harvard.edu backslash translation. We encourage you to share decision-making voices from the field.